there is great delight in uh, in tuning through a variety of different methods and really looking to each method to um, move you in a, in its own unique way but also keep opening you so uh, be very uh, generous in your opening to methods because um, if you bring to them a pure heart and a yearning to be free they will serve you in that way uh, the way you get your karmapans with methods if you use them for power you get power and then you're stuck with the power if you use them to, to reinforce your separateness you get left in your separateness what we are doing is we're reviewing how we can look at our life experience in a way that liberates us from suffering and liberates those with whom we come in contact from suffering. And you'd say, well, that's a negative way of looking at it. You could say, we are learning how to be happy with what is. And the flip that occurs that we're really working with is to figure out how to enjoy the unfolding storyline of your life without being trapped by it. How to delight in it, how to enjoy the play of the uniqueness of each form and how it works and how you interplay and interact without being trapped in the narrowness of it. I have watched again and again in this society people get defined into a role and they start to be scrunched up into that role and that role traps them. For a child to see their mother as a friend, not a mother. For a prisoner and a guard to see each other as fellow human beings instead of just prisoner and guard. There are how many roles we get trapped in. And when the role has a lot of symbolic power to it, we get very trapped in it like uh, wealth or beauty or, or something, some uniqueness, positive or uh, negative. We start to be so identified with our symbolic value and the role we're in that we starve to death because we're, we're trapped. It's like wearing an outfit that's so flamboyant that everybody responds to the outfit and nobody notices you. I meet many people who are so trapped in their roles and trapped in their symbolic value within the society. And we all present ourselves symbolically. We all project who we think we are in the clothes we wear, in the way we walk, in the way we look at other people. That's all the image we have of ourselves projected outward. Sometimes that's very, very strong. You're so busy being somebody that everybody reacts to your somebodyness. And nobody reacts to your nobodiness. Nobody reacts to the part of you that's the I, not the me. And so it's interesting to learn in this lifetime how to inhabit roles lightly. How to inhabit them with love and with joy and with passion and with emptiness. How to delight in the game, in the dance, in the leela, in the play and begin to see your life experiences as grace, as a set of opportunities through which you can become free. They were handed to you. It's bizarre to get to the realization that there are no errors in the game, that the ones that have been handed to you were tailor-made for you. All of your neuroses and your tsaurus and your problems and life's all the stuff no error. Would you just conceive of that possibility for a moment? You have to buy in. I mean, that's my Meshuggah business. Just conceive of it for a moment, that there are no errors in the game. In the sense that you as a soul are a karmic entity. And that karmic entity, using senses, using forms, creates out of the stuff of the universe those forms through which its attachments and aversions create, through which it interacts in order in the awakening phase to go beyond the attractions and the aversions. In other words, to get free of your attractions and aversions, you get to get them to manifest to deal with them. And then you deal with them without juicing them up with intention, but just being with them.
This is very weird, very dense stuff. But it's really uh, tasty. Because you begin to look at your life, the curriculum that's unfolding. It's fun for me, like, because I play with my guru, who's a, a dead guru. I mean, he's, a, he's an illusion. He's my, he's my um, imaginary playmate. I mean, if you're going to have an imaginary playmate, pick one that is wise, funny, a rascal, cosmic giggle, and very loving. And dead is really helpful. <laughs> and so what comes towards me is in, in the game he and I play, what he's laying on me to free me. Now that's real crazy. Yeah. Well, what do you got in store for me today? Well, look at this one. Ah, so. I mean, there are wonderful little lessons in my life along the way. And uh, I just experience my life as an unfolding curriculum. Now, Maharaji, as Sam Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba didn't say, well, in 1995, he will have this happen. It's not that level. It is merely the dialogue between the ego, the soul, and awareness, an inner dialogue going, in which out of awareness, these phenomena are manifesting and dissolving. And which particular ones are attended to or noticed is the soul's karmic determination. And then how you live within it is the ego's game. And by the way, just to uh, clean up so that I don't overstep bounds here, there are many, 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 many other planes of consciousness. I mean, those of you that have studied any of the literature about astral and uh, causal planes and, and uh, all the planes that Sri Aurobindo talks about and the overmind and so on, the oversoul, um, you're dealing with something that is not conceptual, all, all these planes, and you're imposing some conceptual structure to define the differences between the chakras deal with planes of consciousness. So the soul is not only doing work on this plane, but is doing work on a lot of other planes as well. Karma is being run through. So a lot of your dreams, which may not make sense on this plane, have function. It's like your soul's dreaming. And then you wake up and you remember a little of it, and the ego tries to figure out what it's about. But it's really the soul's business. So that's fun. I mean, just using soul lightly now. Don't use it in the heavy sense. Because as, as every Buddhist knows, it ultimately dissolves. It's just a step on a ladder you use in order to extricate yourself from your ego trip. And be careful, the word extrication does not mean dissociation or denial. It does not mean pushing away. It means breaking the identity with. But I can have my MG, and it can be my MG. Like last night, there was an old car parade, and everybody was busy being their old car. I'm a DeSoto and I'm a Packard, and I'm a cut Chevy. And you could see the identity with the form. So I can say it's my MG and be identified with the MG, or I can say, I mean, it's, I love it. It's a wonderful car. I take care of it, and I certainly enjoy driving it, and it's an MG. And I can say it's a body. I love it. I enjoy it. I'm working with it. I'm doing the best I can with it. <laughs> It is slowly decaying. It's probably going to decay and die, I assume. I have no reason not to think it's, to think it's not going. And the interesting question is, how do I manage that temple? A temple for consciousness. How do I take care of my body? How do I do it without being trapped by taking care of it? You will watch that the minute you get something wrong with you, your consciousness will narrow. If you're not very careful until you're busy being your symptom. And the, the caricature of all the old folks sitting on the bench in St. Petersburg or in Arizona having their morning organ recital <laughs> describing
And you, you, the minute you start to cultivate these techniques of mindfulness, you begin to see the game that you're playing, the life you're living, the way it's unfolding, the roles you're in. What you'll learn is that you have a unique karmic predicament, and that will manifest in certain ways at each moment. And to the extent that you push against the manifestation, it takes a lot of juice. To the extent you cling to the manifestation, it takes a lot of juice. And ultimately, what you're doing is dancing deeply but lightly. There's no clinging. The statement, hold on tightly, let go lightly. Be in it, but don't cling. And the to separate, it's interesting because when we love somebody, we want to possess them. We want more of them. We want to collect. We keep wanting to hold it. And we keep getting all of these old moldering dead butterflies in our collection. You know, old loves that were a moment of love and then we destroyed it through possessing it. And the letting go and letting go and letting go, holding tightly, letting go, holding tightly of your interpretation of the moment and letting go. Like, what is this moment? There are dozens of ways, it is, it's hundreds of ways. If each person defined this moment, we would define it in each in our own unique way. And yet we are sharing a moment. And if you get into, that's my take, and this is the only reality. Uh, I work a lot with the third Chinese patriarch of Zen. And um, I just take a f phrases. I mean, I, I always work with the first phrases, which you've all heard. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And you think about all the preferences you have. Color, food, people, places comforts, experiences. Think of them, think of them, think of the thousands. You're a sea of opinions and prejudices and attitudes and wants and dislikes and so on. And think of how many times you've gotten caught in them of being a person with a, an opinion and feel how contracting that is. And you say, but I've got to have opinions I mean, how will I know whether to walk across the street or not? Now can you think about having opinions and not having opinions? Stretch your mind a little bit to allow for the possibility that you can functionally have opinions, but that you are not trapped by them, that you're lightly in them. Yeah, sure. You say to me, I say, gee, it's cold in here. Could we warm it up? But I'm not spending the rest of the day having been cold all, just then. I don't hold it. Now, new moment. 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 Here are just two of the uh, phrases, the stanzas, shlokas. With a single stroke, we are freed from bondage. Nothing clings to us, and we hold to nothing. All is empty, clear, self illuminating. Third plane, awareness, clear, illuminating, present. Ah, yes. Sees the soul unfolding its karma, sees the ego at work. Awareness doesn't see it, it bees it. It's all within it. All is empty, clear, and self-illuminating with no exertion of the mind's power. You don't have to think about it. You just rest in it. Here, thought, feeling, knowledge, and imagination are of no value. In this world of suchness, there is neither self nor other than self. And you could take just those lines and work with them for a whole year. Believe me. These are methods we're talking about now. They're methods for stretching your consciousness so that you allow yourself to inhabit the fullness of your being which is ego and soul and awareness. Now, there's just a few lines in the next one I want to read. To come directly into harmony with this reality. Now, it's describing another method. Just simply say when doubts arise, not to. Not to. In this not to, nothing is separate. Nothing is excluded. No matter when or where, enlightenment means entering this truth. And finally, emptiness here, emptiness there, 
but the infinite universe stands always before your eyes. Phenomena are arising. We're all here together, and we're all here in a quality of emptiness, in which if you go back in your mind far enough behind the me and the I and what the senses are telling you, just keep drawing the awareness back and back and back. What you come into is just empty presence. And yet all the phenomena are here. But the mind isn't grabbing at the phenomena. It's not clinging, it's not avoiding. It's not pulling, it's not pushing. It's not coming, it's not going. It's just, ah. Another moment, ah. Maharaj used to say to me, Ramdas, you shouldn't be with people very much. You should be alone. You should take your food alone. You should eat alone. You should be alone. So I went back to the hotel where all of the devotees, the Western devotees, were hanging out. And I put a sign up on my door that said, do not disturb. And I stayed in my room. Two days later, a couple that was with us had a fight during the night. The next morning they were with Maharaji and Maharaji said, you were fighting? And they said, yes. And he said, when were you fighting? And they said, during the night. Well, did you go to Ramdas? No, he had a sign on his door saying, do not disturb. You didn't go to Ramdas? He wasn't there for you? And he looked at me with disgust. And I was about to say to him, but Maharaji, you said I was supposed to be alone. But in those conflicting messages, I found a message. Because at first you have to be alone by pulling back from people, but you understand what the game is. Finally, the game is to be with people, yet always be alone. Now, how many of you take the feeling of aloneness and feel it as pathology? Have you ever thought of flipping it around? Just that little flip. There's an incredible line about the nature of the potential of relationship, this beautiful quote from the I Ching. And I, it's one of my favorite quotes to use at weddings. The master said, life leads the thoughtful person on a path of many windings. Now the course is checked, now it runs straight again. Here winged thoughts may pour freely forth in words, but there the heavy burden of knowledge must be shut away in silence. But when two people are at one in their inmost hearts, they shatter even the strength of iron or of bronze. And when two people understand each other in their inmost hearts, their words are sweet and strong like the fragrance of orchids. Now we're talking about souls hanging out together. Souls who don't need anything from each other. They both are just watching the unfolding. The unfolding on the ego level may involve their interaction, the roles through which they interact. But the souls are just sharing a delight in the unfolding of the dance. At certain stages in the journey, if you have a choice, it's wonderful to have other beings around you, sometimes called the satsang or the sangha, a community of other beings like are gathered in this room that recognize what the journey or the curriculum is about that we are born into here. And they help you. We help each other. And it's a very precious thing to have other people you meet and know that are journeying on the path together. And it's interesting to examine the contracts we make with fellow human beings because most of the relationships we enter into are at the ego level in which I am somebody and I enter into a contract with you as somebody. And usually the nature of the contract is, I won't bug your somebodyness if you don't bug mine. I'll allow you to be who you think you are if you'll allow me to be who I think I am. Basically is what we're saying to each other. The difference is that when you meet with satsang, you say, 
I am trapped in thinking I'm somebody. You are trapped. Could we help each other get free? Now, the peculiar circumstance is when you make that contract with somebody and they come up and say, you're trapped, wake up. You say, you're trapped. What do you know about it? Because when somebody is trapped, they are trapped, <laughs> meaning they think it's real. And in their reality, your criticism is seen as a criticism, not as a helpful hint. So if you're going to enter into the relation of sangha or satsang with that somebody, you've got to realize that truth is a little scary to live with. It's much better to live with truth, however, than with the kind of numbing deception of, of all of us making believe a reality is real. I mean, when you look at the way, the violence that consistency has done to your truth, it's staggering. Because when you understand that you move in and out of all these different levels. Like Maharaji, when I was with him, he'd just be floating around in levels. I remember once he said, he looked at it, was he like he just came out of a trance, he says, all the money in the world is mine. It's a great line, isn't it? I mean, I try to think of the ramifications of that. And the Pope thought he had some. All the money in the world is mine. And then a few minutes later, he's just, and he looks around, he says, I can do nothing. God does everything. I can do nothing. God does everything. Now, at one level, it's just like the Ananda Ma quotes yesterday. One of them is, I serve my husband as if they were God. That's a dualistic devotional practice or path or statement in dualism. In dualism, you spend your time loving the beloved. In non-dualism, you are the beloved. You exist on both planes. How do you train your awareness so that it doesn't get trapped in one plane and then cut off your access to the other planes? That's what the issue is. And you begin to see how your definitions of yourself keep trapping you, let alone the projections that you have to other people, let alone their projections on you. So you and I live in a sea of projective systems, some of which are coming out of our own desires, needs, fears, attractions, aversions, preferences, prejudices, opinions, and some of which are coming from everybody else's. And the question of how do you dance through all that without ending up completely caught in it, especially when the ones coming out of you and the ones coming out of them say the same thing. That's a real conspiracy. See, the predicament is as you awaken, you realize you have been the perpetrator of the conspiracy you got caught in. It's not like, it's not real paranoia. It's not like they did it to me. They've got this terrible conspiracy. You're it. You are it. We are it. We are the conspiracy. And the interesting question is, when you extricate your awareness from being part of the conspiracy, what happens? If you're just doing it in a half-baked way at first, you're busy telling everybody you've gotten free of the conspiracy and then they usually imprison you somewhere <laughs> because you don't get free of the conspiracy. But a mature person isn't in the conspiracy and is not in the conspiracy even to the point of putting down the conspiracy. They're just not in the conspiracy. They're living in a different universe and therefore their being is free of that conceptual homogeneous field and that freedom is what they offer to another human being that frees them. And it's as if we all meet through our prison cells, high in there. What's it like? Do you know how to get out? No, do you? And to see the maturity of being able to extricate your awareness from entrapment in role without violence and fulfilling the roles at the same time, but fulfilling them from a different, different, different place. When I took care of dad, my father, during the last years of his life, when I first started to take care of him, as I've told you before, some of you, I did it so much out of righteousness. I mean, I was giving up something to go and make my apartment in the basement of his house and do that as my base camp. And 
when you're 50 years old to go back to being Richard in a house where somebody else is the father when I, you know, I wasn't even Ramdas in the house. It's very schizophrenic. And I was righteous. I was milking it. And people would say, aren't you good taking care of your father? And I'd say, well, somebody has to do it. And I, I just get what I could out of it, you know, like. <laughs> but you know, any tack you take with your mind gets boring after a while. I mean, you can only milk righteousness so many changing of pampers and so many feeding of food and so many, you know, you can only, I'm righteously helping you down the steps. I'm righteously, you know. You get bored with any trip. They're all too finite. So then uh, I moved into another one. I thought that one fell away and I decided I was, my father was karma yoga. So I was using my father to get enlightened for the benefit of all beings. And I didn't necessarily have to tell him that, but basically that's what it was. I'm helping you with non-attachment. Now we are moving here with non-attachment. Oh, money, pay me, yes. I was really pucky yogi, serving my father. And that got boring after a while. And it just kept arriving at different levels of being together until finally the mind trips were gone, the conscious, the, the archetypal storylines were dissolving and all there was, was he was being and I was being and the nature of the way of things in the karmic unfolding of our lives as father, child at this stage in our lives had this particular dynamic going in which that was the part that awareness played through him and that was the part awareness played through me and there was nothing personal involved in it at all. It was like a tree becoming a tree or a flower blooming. It was just the natural way of things. It was, as they say in Zen Buddhism, nothing special. It was nothing out of the ordinary. It was just the way of things. It was like tuning into the harmony of the universe. And when you are tuned, when you're listening to what does it mean that I'm a political entity? What does it mean that I'm a social entity? What does it mean that I'm a religious entity? What it means that I'm a sexual entity? What does it mean that I'm a cultural entity? What does it mean that, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a uh, biotic community entity. Hearing the nature, how freedom comes through the investing in form, freedom through form statement in the Heart Sutra, form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. The art is not to deny form in order to grab at emptiness, but to have the emptiness and fulfill the form. And when you quiet down enough and listen in your own life to hear your unique manifestation, and you're really quiet, you get through the obsession with individualism that you had as an ego in our culture at this moment, and you realize you are part of systems. You're part of family, you're part of all of these different communities, ethnic groups, all of the stuff. And then you bring to that, with your awareness, the listening to hear how you manifest within that system in a way that is not with attraction and not with aversion, but really playing your part, playing your part, dancing the dance. So I listen and I hear I have certain skills. I have certain connections, so I have certain opportunities to talk to certain people. Those things, when I listen to hear, how will I manifest, say, in the political field? I hear, well, there are these opportunities, there is this skill. When, as I listen, that comes through and I can say to somebody, dup, 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 or whatever I can say, and it can enter into my way of being a political person. And in the same way, I'm part of the economic systems of the, of the physical plane. How can I honor the economics of it? Not by putting it down, even though it traps most people and not by elevating it to worship, as most people also do. I mean, if you look at the dollar bill and that wonderful pyramid that the Masons have on there, with the top, the eye separated from the rest of it, you understand 
that all of the solidity of the whole system only works when it is in connection with what the eye of God, the eye of the one, the balance to another plane. That is, that's a perfect description of planes of consciousness on every dollar bill. And when I listen, I say, well, what have I got to contribute? And what, what kind of a bargain should I make about money, about, about economics? To fulfill it, should I amass a lot of money and give it away? Or hold it or spend it or what should I do? There's no rule in the book about what you do. Each person has to listen to hear. I mean, I deal with people that are, that have hardly anything. They are way below the poverty level and they are at peace. I know people like that. In India, I certainly know people like that. I know people who are so wealthy, they are on the Fortune 500 wealthiest people in America. Some of them are happy, some of them aren't. But often, they are more trapped by money than the people who don't have it. And then many times, the people who don't have it are obsessed with it. And the people who have some are afraid they're going to lose it, or they won't have enough. And the amount of consciousness caught in the domain of economics is amazing. And I found myself working uh, with the business community because I looked around and I said, what I have to share is Dharma, what I've learned, what I've been doing for the past 25, 30 years. Since business is the major social institution in the world at the moment, it's more powerful than nation states, it's more powerful than religions, can I play with the beast? So I got involved with business people. And I started to hang out in a group called the Social Venture Network. They're easy business people to be with. They're all people like Ben and Jerry and Reebok and the Levi's and people that are good persons in business. But the conspiracy within business to see business as a certain way that it has to be, this is all ego level. It's very interesting when you're in India and you meet somebody who does business as Dharma. And you understand there is an incredible thing for the West to learn about business, about how you do business as Dharma. It's the same way as how you raise a child as Dharma. It's the same way as how you make love as Dharma. It's the same way as how you do any relationship in terms of Dharma. Dharma meaning how can you be in this form in a way that does not create suffering, in a way that liberates? How can I act in a way that does not exacerbate suffering? That seems very logical to me, even to my mind. Ben and Jerry told me at one point, it's been published, but... Uh, Ben and Jerry said that they started out, you know, in a garage with an ice cream making. They tried to decide whether it be donut makers or ice cream makers, and they, ice cream seemed easier, so they made ice cream. They were two hippies, and they made ice cream, and, and pretty soon they were making more and more ice cream, and they were having other ice cream places, and they were suddenly in business. And they said, we don't want to be in business. What the hell? I, we hate business. And uh, Ben had a friend, an old man in New Jersey, and he went to visit him, who had been in business for many years, and he said, Ben said, I'm going to give this up. I don't like business. The guy says, if you don't like it, why don't you change it? And that's an interesting question. How do you take business and make it dharmic? Like, who is a competitor? Is it them or is it us? I mean, the, the, the fun story I enjoy telling at SVN, which, uh, again, many of you know, but it's the story about uh, when I put out uh, with a group of people, we put out uh, a beautiful uh, four-record album with a beautiful booklet and a lovely box. It was called Love, Serve, Remember. And it was, it was a mail-order item for four and a half dollars some years ago. And uh, my father took a look at it. He was a major business player. And he said, pretty good product. I mean, he didn't listen to it, but he looked at it, and he, I said, yeah, and he said, boy, it looks like, what are you charging, four and a half dollars? You could get a lot more for this than that. I said, you're probably right. He says, you could charge $10 for this. 
said, yeah. He said, would fewer people buy it? I said, no. He said, I don't understand you. Are you against capitalism? And what have I raised here? I mean, I don't mind you being a, a Hindu, but you're not against capitalism. <laughs> and I said, I try to think of how to explain to him. And I said, Dad, you remember last year, Dad was also a lawyer besides being a business person. And I said, remember last year you tried a case for Henry? Yeah. I remember you worked quite hard on that. Yeah, I had to spend a lot of time at the law library. That was a tough case, damn it. But you won it, yeah. I said, well, you know, you are, your firm is known for charging pretty hefty fees. What did you charge Henry? It must have been a mint. Don't be out of your mind. It's Uncle Henry. Of course I didn't. I said, well, that's my problem. When you can find somebody who isn't Uncle Henry, I'll rip him off. Okay. It's interesting to create systems in which you see others as how can you get the top thing from them, get the most from them, them. Not from us, but from them, for the benefit of us. And what you create is a certain kind of boundary of your consciousness that it's really hard to get through. And you end up being isolated by it. To examine in businesses the relation between a CEO who takes something like 80 times the salary of an employee and then the CEO says, we're all one big family. Does that mean that CEO is worth 80 times? Is that a CEO working 80 times harder? Is that benefit that much? The cost of that money is not free to the system. The cost of that money is extremely harsh on the ability of all of us to be us. Now, I mean, I can't be a purist about it, but I can hear the directions it has to go. The question of how do you live with us? And so you look and you say, at any business, who are all the stakeholders? There are the, there's the board of directors, there are the investors, there are the employees, there is the staff, there are the competitors, there are the, uh, the suppliers. They are all stakeholders in the game. And ultimately, the issue is, what is a way to be with all of these stakeholders to optimize the relief of suffering and the amount of compassion in the system? And I am one of the stakeholders, but just one of them. And to start to relook at business, like just the issue of sustainability of resources, sustainability of environment. I mean, what kind of consciousness shift in business is there where the economics of making decisions that recycle or renew or limit the use of non-renewable resources when does that value system shift? Like I've just been through a bizarre set of dramas about this because when these companies attempt to shift the game, the society doesn't say, oh, how wonderful, somebody's reminding us of the Dharma. If you are making you know, 50 times what your next employee is making, you don't want to be reminded of that particularly. You want to stay within your rationalizations. And what happens, very interesting, is like um, Anita Roddick in The Body Shop. Anita is a very caring human being, and she really wanted to involve indigenous peoples in developing countries with the opportunity to make livings, serving with products, and so on. And she tried. And she's also a hell of a saleswoman, and she just said what she was doing. She's got a huge company. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar company. And the amount that that product is, is a tiny, tiny little segment. So the press comes along and says, phony. The press says, you're bad because you're saying we do this, but you only do it a little. Now, I think she overstated her case. And I think that if you're going to play this game of shifting the business mind, you damn well better be impeccable. Because what you open yourself to is the cynicism that exists in a system when it tries to change.
one of the major articles criticizing the body shop was published by one of the other members of Social Venture Network. It's like one club. This is a group of people that have come together to bring sustainability and justice into business. And so Business Ethics Magazine published this article by Entine. Entine just was out to get. He was 60 minutes journalism kind of mentality. Connie Chung, you know, get him. Because it makes good news, good media. So we came to a meeting where really the, the places was dissolving into camps was such a hot issue because this meant loss of millions of dollars of revenue to the body shop, meant that many of their um, franchisees were threatened whether they could survive because they were suddenly being labeled as bad guys. And um, one of the very wise people of our organization, Josh Mailman, who started it actually, he said, what we need is a Quaker-style meeting. So we had a meeting, an open meeting, around the issue, and we said to everybody, and they asked me to lead the meeting, and we said, let's just deal with people's feelings about the situation. Since the facts are going to be interpreted one way or the other, let's not stay with the facts at the moment. Let's just deal with the feelings. And between each person's comment, let's have some silence. And let's just hear each other. And there must have been 200 people in the room and just different people spoke up about their pain or their feeling of the responsibility of journalism or the responsibility of businesses or the conflict within a family or, or how everybody should go ahead and do it. I mean, there were all the different ways in which we were hearing it, but we were listening to one another. And we came out of that meeting feeling like the organization was finally justifying itself because we were growing in hearing how clean businesses had to be and how they had to work. Like the result of that is very interesting because the result of that is that a uh, Kirk Hansen, who is a professor at the Stanford Business School, a very reputable, wonderful professor, has been hired now by the body shop to do an external audit of their socially responsible practices. In other words, what you do ultimately is you self-audit or you hire an independent agency to audit you and publish the results. In other words, Body Shop has got to be able to say, we're not good and we're not bad. We're just we're working at it and this is how we're working at it. And every error that Kirk will show us, we'll do what we can to start to clean up our act. That's a constructive next step in this whole process of change. I, I mean, sorry to belabor the story so much. But I think it's an important uh, way of showing you what bringing Dharma into it is about. It's to reminding people to not get so locked in polarization that you don't hear the, the compassionate human side of it, the process going on, and turn it back into a process, into a dance, into a movement. And I am amazed in that organization of going from five years ago when I first went into that organization, was invited in because I'm not a business person. Uh, they have a small percentage for sort of weird and kooky people. And they snuck me in on that one. Couldn't even pay the dues. They went from treating me as somebody's aberration, you know. And in five years, we've changed around until we are really, really listening to one another. And I went into a situation where when business people were talking and I'd come into the room, they'd think, there's the holy person. They'd stop talking until I went away because they were putting through a deal of some sort that I wouldn't be interested in. <laughs> and over the years, we've just come slowly, slowly, slowly to listen to one another and respect one another. We just had an incredible conference called Spirit and Business that Bernie Glassman, who's a Zen monk in New York, and I co-chaired. And the business community invited us in, and we did mantra together. And we had a fire ceremony, and they threw pine cones into the fire. I mean, they couldn't believe they were even doing it. <laughs> On point, Mitch Kapoor, who started the Lotus Company, was throwing his pie. He looked at me like, could this be happening? <laughs> So I, I, I think I'm telling that story, I'm sure, 
out of self-aggrandizement. But I, I, now we need to cool it down. Whoever does those things, thank you. There we go. Tighten your seatbelts. Um, I tell you that story because what I'm interested in is us examining the interplay between mindfulness, between, in a way, the soul and the ego, between your life stuff, the stuff of life, like the economics of life, and the moral issues and all of the stuff. So you're quiet enough to just sort of feel your way into how it is and start to work with understanding the unfolding of your own life from a very quiet place inside your own being. So you're not so busy doing it all the time. It's funny, we all have this, this cultural thing. What do you do? What are you going to do today? Well, what are you doing? Hi, what are you doing? What have you been up to? And yet, the thing we yearn for, the satisfaction, the feeling of fulfillment, comes out of the beingness in the moment. And this is why this book on aging, pardon my randomness, but it all fits together in my mind. This book on aging is so appropriate for me to be dealing with at this moment, not cause, just because I'm uh, 64, but also because that whole quality of quietness, of reflectiveness, of space, of, of the wisdom source, the intuitive wisdom source, is so scrunched out of the society by our obsession with technology, which makes old people obsolete, with our dysfunctional mythology, because it's all around thinking your way out of everything and being an activist. Like there was a moment when I was talking to a guy who writes speeches for Bill Clinton in the White House. And I said to him, tell me, in the White House, is there anybody there that is not in a lying capacity, that doesn't have power, that is merely there to hold the space? Is there anybody reflective, not reactive? And he reflected on it. And he said, no, there is nobody. Probably the cat or something. <laughs> but all the people are all busy. It's like putting out fires all day. They're all busy reacting and thinking their way out of and, and just like that all the time. And if you recall in the old days, um, heads of state used to have elder councils or something. They recognized there was wisdom and the wisdom came out of people that stood back from the game enough to have some perspective so they could say, yeah, that's true, but consider that. And we have, in effect, lost that. We don't value it. And now there is an interesting moment in history because as the baby boomers become 50 starting in 1996, the numbers in the system change so that the old people are just coming into power. I mean, the AARP doesn't even know what to do with all its power yet. That's the American Association of Retired Persons that all of us are become members of after 50. Because it's a great lobby for insurance, for housing, for food, for medical care. It has no consciousness at all about inner work, social role, about change. It's amazing that aging in a youth-oriented culture is seen as a problem. Can you imagine a stage of life being a problem? And we get caught in it in our own minds. My skin is sagging, I got a problem. I'm not sexy, I got a problem. I don't have my worldly power anymore over a lot of people, I have a problem. Look at the difference between a problem and whew, now what will I do? Now what can I be? Now what can I open to? Because these things we're talking about, about the perspective that comes from soul in relation to ego, that comes from just standing back that little bit, that perspective is exactly what 
aging as honored properly brings into the society. Because at that stage of life, which we have no rituals for entering the stage, we do not articulate the roles within that stage, we don't respect it, and it's not going to come from young people who say, oh, you know what we're missing? We're missing old wise people. It's going to be the fact that the old wise people have the numbers and they're going to say, you're going to respect us because this is who we are. And we're tired of buying your model of who we are. But we're caught in it because we were you just a little while ago, laying it on them and now we're them and it stinks. So we're going to change it. Because when we were us, we had the numbers, but now we're them, and now we have the numbers, so it's all going to change. So believe me, every bus is going to kneel. Every senator is going to kneel. <laughs> what I saw in my own life was that I, if I weren't very mindful, I was going to just slide into a way of looking at myself that was the cultural consensus of who I must be because of the age I was. I just saw it happening. The story I tell, which I'm starting my book with actually, is being on the train in the evening going from Westport, Connecticut to Grand Central Station. And I, the Westport station was closed and so I had to buy the ticket on the train. And the conductor came through and he said, tickets. And I said, I have to purchase my ticket. And he said, what kind do you want? I said, do I have a choice? And he said, regular or senior? I was 62. I had never thought about that before. It's a new choice. And I said, senior? I did it like when I was 18, I went in for my first beer in New York. <laughs> beer? No, yeah. When the bartender said, let me see your identification, you know. This guy didn't ask for my identification. He just gave me a senior ticket. I said, how much is this? He said, four and a half. I said, how much is a regular ticket? He said, seven. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was very pleased. But as he walked away, I had this ticket. It said senior citizen on it. And I realized I had put on a coat that was very strangely fitting. It certainly didn't have any inner experience of who I was. I didn't think of myself as a senior citizen. And I saw how much other stuff went with that senior citizenness, that it didn't come free. That it didn't come free. It came with a whole lot of attitudes and values and expectations and so on. And if you look at the role models we have for aging, for successful aging, it's people that stay young. That at 230 are still playing tennis. You know? Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with playing tennis over 100 years old. I think it's superb. I mean, blessings to you. But to make that the role model seems to me to have some massive denial in it. It really does. And I'll take it even further to just push the idea that when the body starts to break down, to treat those changes as only pathology and not as the conditions for work on consciousness, seems to me it's blowing a hell of an opportunity. It seems to me that your life offers you a set of circumstances to work with and everybody's got them. You scratch the surface of everybody in the room and there is suffering. Everybody, little bit here and there. And that stuff, once you see what your curriculum is, that becomes the grist, that becomes the stuff you work with through which you become aware. That's the soul's way of working with the ego storyline. The soul is using the ego's as the world turns, its melodrama, its storyline, as its vehicle for working out its karma. Now the question is, where is your identity? Is your identity with ego, with soul? And then of course, we've got identity as awareness. And I'll tell you that until you figure out that you fulfill all the planes and are attached to none of them, you don't even begin to understand what freedom feels like. Because freedom isn't pushing away any plane of consciousness. 
so that when taking care of dad, I realized after he died what an incredible teaching that had been for me. What a gift I had received. First, I had come back into the family. I had come back and honoring my father in this way, that was part of my incarnation, to honor my father. That's the way. He took care of me when I was a baby. Now I was taking care of him. But also, it was the completion of some work with us. And he went from being one personality to another. And as his personality changed, we met in new ways, and we met in new ways, and we came up until we were just being together. And I saw that when I had completed that, when Dad died and I was completed the estate and all that stuff, that I had honored that component of my incarnation. And honoring didn't mean holding on to it or grabbing it or pushing it away. And I saw that back in the 60s when I turned on and I got so high, I said, the family doesn't understand. I can't hang out with them. They bring me down. I've got to go do my own trip for the benefit of all beings, you understand. And I finally had to understand that to honor my incarnation meant to honor the systems of which I'm a part. And it's led me much more to be involved in politics, much more to be involved in social issues, much more to be involved in uh, philanthropic stuff, much more to be involved in health issues and so on. Not out of any goody-goody, you know, aren't I good to do all that? But after a while, you just, it's like you're settling into a hot tub. You're settling into your dharma. You're settling into your way of being in life. Somebody comes up to me and says, I'd love to meditate. I'd love to do spiritual work, but I have these kids. You hear something wrong in that? I'd love to run the marathon, but I have arthritis. Now, where is the suffering there? Partly the suffering's in the arthritis. But partly the suffering is in the, in the tension created by having the desire of I could be happy if I were doing this, although the conditions are not allowing me to do it. I mean, I just look at what happens when you get old. You start to lose your hearing a little bit. You can't see so well, and you don't move so fast. And when I go into a meditation course, it's funny. What you do is you pull your awareness in from your ears hearing, from your eyes seeing, and you sit still. Could it be that there is a message? <laughs> that there is an inner curriculum for human beings? That they are finally free to explore, but they're too frightened to explore it, so they keep clinging to repetitions. Andrew Carnegie, when somebody said, you've got so much money, why do you keep doing more? He says, I forgot how to stop. I forgot how to stop. You and I are playing with this deliciously delicate process because if you push too hard to get free of what you've been trapped in that very pushing entraps you the avoidance of stuff becomes a trap people would say I've got to live in the country I can't stand the city it brings me down they're like crippled by that concept if I choose I'll choose to live in Marin it's lovely but if I don't live in Marin, it'll be lovely. If I do live in Marin, it'll be lovely. It'll all pass. It's all disintegrating. It's all very precious. The moment is the moment. I presented a, a model, a functional model for practice, for conceiving of what the spiritual journey is about. And what we had when we looked at the whole story of lifetime, of incarnation, is we have what you'd call ascend, descent, ascent, descent. You have, and descent and ascent isn't value judgments, it's just a directional statement of movement. Awareness has, in some mysterious way, which you don't know, has manifested as a multiplicity of entities, which we will now call souls. And those each have their own unique karmic storyline. And those souls then take incarnation somewhere or other when it's appropriate to work out whatever they're working out. And we are that product to the extent that we are egos. We are somebodies. We come down and we become somebody. And as that awareness starts to identify as a soul and immediately feels separate from the totality, <clears throat> and then it takes birth as a body, and then when we are born, 
and then we separate from our mother and all, we begin to experience another separation now as ego. So it's a separation within a separation, if you will. That's the descent into more and more dense form. And that form is what we live out as an incarnation. Somewhere along the line in that story, we awaken, we begin to realize that we are not only the incarnation, that there is more to us than meets the eyes. And we begin, the more than we think we are, we are. And that leads us to relook at our experiences and to open to new experiences that allow us to enter into other planes of consciousness, other perspectives, other ways of looking at it. And that awakening starts, and at first, because you have been in such a, a thick substance, you've been so feeling often very entrapped in your story, in your body, in your suffering and whatever. When you awaken, there is a joy, a breath, it's like coming above the smog when you fly. But there is also um, a, a kind of fear of getting trapped again and a tendency to push against the stuff you were trapped in. You can use that like a rocket booster to get you out there, push against. It's the renunciate path, basically. But ultimately, as you get established more as a soul, more established as just awareness, which isn't even you anymore, as those become more real and you become comfortable in them, then you look and you see that the incarnation that you have taken wasn't an error and it wasn't a failure and you're not making mistakes. It is just an unfolding process. And it's nothing so personal about it all. Your personality isn't that interesting. And at that point, you start to, uh, from a soul's point of view, start to inhabit your incarnation at first resignedly and then ultimately joyfully because it's just God at play, it's just form. So you went from the descent into form initially, then you awaken and awaken your awareness going into more and more until your awareness is awareness. That's the ascent. And then there's the next stage where the ascent starts to finally stop pushing against the more dense forms and enters into them. And then there is the descent. And then you see that the whole process is constantly the ascent and descent. And it's all, it's just a liquid process in which both are going on all the time. You're constantly bringing spirit down into form and you're constantly as form moving towards spirit or moving towards formless. It's the dance of form and formless. It's the dance of the devotee and the guru. It's the dance of the lover and the beloved. It's a dialogue that goes the foreplay, the consummation, the foreplay, the consummation. It just keeps dancing back and forth in those things. And you begin to experience your life as that, as moving in and out of all of these planes all the time. And there are some, uh, there's some just incredible literature that describes all this. If you ever have a chance to read any of Sri Aurobindo's works, there's a great poem of Savitri, which describes the goddess coming to earth as Savitri and her experiences on earth with full consciousness of her planes, her higher planes along the way. What we call an avatar is somebody who takes birth on the physical plane but doesn't get lost in it, remains aware of their spiritual identity all the way through. Most of us get lost and then we wake up a little bit or more or less. So. With that backdrop, we can see that a lot of our spiritual practices are moving us from ego to soul. We're clawing our way up out of the darkness, supposedly, which turns out not to be dark at all, but it seems shadowy from where we've been. And we claw up, and then when we're a soul and we're established in soulness, then we start to have that beautiful dialogue that, the, that Rumi and Kabir speak about, the, the intimate with the beloved, with the guest. Where are you, O oh friend? Where have you been? Where can I find you? I hunger to be with you. And there is this other kind of, it's no longer a practice, it's like a making love celebration of the many with the one. You're constantly, ah, ah, and I can only, invite you to read that poetry, to feel that, to feel that the separation of you from all of it is not a mistake, it's not a failure, it's part of the dance of form and formlessness. 
so that you are the one and you are the many. And then after that, the next part of the practice is the practice of integration, of learning how to keep all this going at once, how to have integrity across your life so that you don't act one way at a retreat and then go out and act another way later, so that you learn how not to get lost in the stuff of your life, but to stay aware and yet stay involved. That whole integration process is, is very, very fascinating because you keep feeling as your mind is quiet how you keep getting lost one way or another. I mean, a lot of people go into la-la land and as I usually kid, they lose their zip code. They, they, don't lo they lose their ground. They forget their ground. They're so high and spaced, they lose their ground. And many people are so afraid of losing their ground, they won't take a little leap. They won't even open to the soulness of their being because they're afraid of loss of control. Their mind is so strong the ego mind is so strong, they're terribly frightened of losing control. And the integrity of the whole system is that you and I are meeting as personalities, as egos. You and I are meeting as souls, and there is awareness here. And all of that is true. And how are you and I going to figure out how to be together like that? Not be together as egos hoping to become something else, but actually be together where those three planes are real for us. So when we meet, you're meeting yourself, really, in a different form. In marriages, when I uh, work with couples or, uh, in, or perform marriage ceremonies, things like that, I always visualize a triangle. People come together, and when it is the yoga of relationship, through each other, they meet the being that lies just behind the awareness that is both of them, the one. And they come into the one through each other, through all of the forms of their dialogue with one another, making love and talking and cooking and walking and all of it, are all vehicles for meeting in the space of just shared awareness, which is sweet like the smell of orchids. It's that quote from the I Ching. And then that one dances as two. And to get to the point where you're involved with somebody in relationship, in work, in marriage, or children, and you're aware, and you're both aware of the play of the forms, and you're delighting in it together, the play of the forms, which are your separatenesses. And that's an extraordinary experiment, extraordinary experiment. And the tricky one is keeping your consciousness mindful enough so you don't get yourself trapped in a role or an identity, but you're constantly fulfilling your roles, but always as vehicles for becoming free. Realizing that what we are about here on earth is to become free. And why, forget why, just do it. <laughs> and when you're free, you'll know why. That's the promise. You'll be why. You won't know why, you'll be why. <laughs>